Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, we'll hear about a bill before the Connecticut General Assembly that would help veterans with other than honorable discharges access state benefits. First, today we're talking about the Iraq War. The United States invaded Iraq in March of 2003, and the war waged on for nearly nine years until President Obama followed through on an agreement to have the U.S. military officially withdraw from the country in December 2011. But that didn't mean the war ended. Today, 5,000 U.S. troops are still in Iraq to train and support Iraqi forces, who are now currently battling ISIS in the city of Mosul. Iraqi and coalition aircraft and artillery pummeled ISIS targets in the western part of the city. The bombardment of western Mosul is intense and steady. Iraqi forces have taken more villages southwest of Mosul. That's reporting over the last week from CNN and Al Jazeera. Now, ISIS has taken control of key cities in Iraq since 2014. The dominance of the so-called caliphate grew out of the country's instability and rise of insurgents, insurgents who streamed into Iraq after the U.S. invaded. Ironically, the support American troops are giving Iraqi soldiers today is what the military was doing back in 2004. Retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel Michael Zakea knows firsthand during his year-long deployment then, his job was to train and lead the 1st Iraqi Army Battalion. He details his mission in the new book, The Ragged Edge, co-written with Ted Kemp, a senior editor at CNBC. Mike joins us here in studio in Hartford, and Ted Kemp joins us by phone. Mike and Ted, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks a lot for having us. So Michael Zakay, again, retired lieutenant colonel of the U.S. Marine Corps, a co-author of The Ragged Edge, a U.S. Marine's account of leading the Iraqi Army 5th Battalion. That's the full title. You've been on the show before. For our listeners who don't know a little bit about you, tell them about you. When did you decide to enlist in the U.S. military? Sure. Uh, so I enlisted in the Marine Corps uh, after my junior year in high school in 1985. So uh, I can't believe it's more than 32 years <laughs> now. But um I got commissioned. I went to college. I got a scholarship. I got commissioned as a second lieutenant, and then I was a career uh, Marine. And I had a number of deployments. I went to Somalia. I was in Haiti. Um, I did some uh, work called B billets or short billets. I was on recruiting duty. And then I got recalled to uh, go to Iraq to do this particular advisory mission um, at a time when um, no American had ever built and trained and led in combat in Iraq, uh, an Arab uh, military. So this is a, uh, a book long time coming because you have spent a long time um, going over your time um, in Iraq. Now in Connecticut, you're a well-known advocate among the veterans community. You've been leading uh, the program at UConn, the Entrepreneurship Boot Camp for Veterans with Disabilities for some time. Uh, but why do this book? This book came out of um, therapy I was doing in 2007, 2008, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And you have to write down a bunch of events that happen. Then you keep going over it and keep going over it and keep going over it and finding more details and processing it. Um, by the time I had finished that process, I had uh, over 300 pages of written, handwritten material. 
um, I showed it to a friend of mine, and he suggested that this could and should be uh, a book. And um, I, I realized that I needed help in crafting it as a as a narrative. Um, and I put up a uh, help wanted ad on a writer's uh, forum, and a bunch of people applied. And eventually, I hooked up with Ted, and uh, Ted, you know, came aboard um, in late 2008. Now, Ted is on the phone with us. He's a senior editor at CNBC. Ted, what is it about Mike's story that compelled you to, uh, you know, to answer that ad and start this collaboration? Well, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a sort of an autodidact of, of history, and uh, I cover, um, you know, geopolitics uh, for CNBC. It's just something that's been a big interest of mine for a long time, including military issues. And when Mike approached me, uh, we, we actually got together. We were having uh, pizza in Grand Central Station the first time we met face-to-face to talk about the possibility of working together. And um, it became clear early on that he had a really extraordinary story to tell because what he, he actually was a, his, he was a historically significant individual whose story had never been told. And he's historically significant because he – he was the first uh, U.S. serviceman to, to try to raise a, a you know, so-called sort of native military unit um, to fight sort of on behalf of the United States or uh, to further U.S. goals. And that's something that had no Westerner had done since, since Lawrence of Arabia did it, you know, literally, literally 100 years ago this year. And, uh, and on top of that, he had such a wealth of uh, information. He had, he had been a meticulous journal keeper. He had written these therapeutic uh, pages, as he was mentioning earlier. And he had a number of photographs, and it just there was a lot there to work with. And so I immediately accepted. Mike, take us back to 2004. We know now there was a lot of theater uh, that was taking place from uh, the administration of George W. Bush. Uh, we, we invaded in 2003. Uh, after a few weeks, the U.S. Uh, declared victory. And um, at this time, you're an officer in the Marine Corps. You're given a job to do in 2004. Um, a lot of what we now know about um, the war was probably not known back then, at least right. from, from you leading uh, this unit. So take us back to that time and how you felt knowing that you were being deployed there to do this particular mission, to train uh, the Iraqis uh, in this new Iraqi army. Uh, you know, like many or all Americans, I had been subject to a certain amount of propaganda about the Iraqi army. And, you know, I, I became a Marine officer right during the first Gulf War. And there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, their Soviet order of battle and they're the four, fourth largest land army in uh, the world, and they've been in eight years of combat against the Iranians, et cetera. Um, and that propaganda during my military career sort of continued, and you know everybody believed that Saddam Hussein was sort of this really bad actor. Um, the Iraqi army, uh, during the what they call the march up, basically collapsed within a period of you know a few weeks. Um, so when I got orders. Um, there was at that time a low-level insurgency. There were some bombs. There were, uh, you know, uh, people were still running around Baghdad without uh, um, armed convoys or you know, things like that. Um, when I got there, though, it became very apparent that, um, especially in March of 2004, which is when the whole Fallujah thing went uh, happened, um, and then April when the first Battle of Fallujah happened, uh, that there was a, a real insurgency. That um, you know the 
I believe that the Department of Defense and the Bush administration were slow to identify. Uh, they specifically referred to it as a few dead-enders, a few people who, you know, were not ready to give up the fight and that they would eventually. But, you know, my experience and what I saw on the ground was that this is a real um, intent insurgency that wanted to fight. Uh, they were not dead-enders. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today I'm speaking to the co-authors of a new book. It's called The Ragged Edge, a U.S. Marine's account of leading the Iraqi Army 5th Battalion. It's an account of the work that Michael Zakea did, a Connecticut resident, retired lieutenant colonel of the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, Ted Kemp helped write that book, senior editor at CNBC. You know, I wanted to read a passage, uh, Mike. You mentioned this insurgency. Um, it was written here. There was a real insurgency churning in Iraq under its own power. The White House didn't call it by its name, but we on the ground knew what it was. Angry men flowing into Iraq from all over the Middle East and beyond. By the spring of 04, we were not doing a cleanup operation anymore. We were fighting an insurgency that had not existed until we sparked it. Right. And I think it's really, really important because a lot of my uh, combat was with non-Iraqis who had joined what was then called al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, it was started by Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, um, it, actually, it was, he originally called it uh, the Islamic State of Iraq, and then he pledged allegiance to Osama bin Laden and became al-Qaeda in Iraq. But none of that existed uh, before we got there, and it started specifically in response to our presence in, in Iraq. Um, and there were people coming from all over the Middle East uh, to fight. Uh, we encountered a lot of Syrians, um, Libyans, um, Saudis, uh, Chechnyans. A lot of Chechnyans came um, and that was my experience. Um, and they, their propaganda was that they wanted to fight the, the crusading, the, the crusaders and the Zionists. Tell us about the recruits. Um, Paul Bremer, if we remember, uh, was the one that led the co coalition provisional authority. He didn't do any favors by disbanding the country's, Iraq's military after the U.S. invaded. So now you had to start from scratch. Who were the people you were recruited and what were the challenges? So this is really fascinating. And um, this is really how I got to know Iraqis and know the country. And, uh, you know, my counterpart, um, Zane, uh, never forgot to uh, remind me that these were poor farmers. And when we say poor, you know, we have in the United States, we have a certain idea of what you know, somebody from the, the uh, rural America is like, but these are really like subsistence uh, farmers, uh, people who never had access to health care. Um, many people never had shoes before. Um, and uh, many of the concepts that we were introducing to them were completely alien um, to them, um, not just because we were Americans speaking a different language, but, you know, concepts of, um, you know, providing them with, uh, you know, the gear that they needed or, um you know, the physical fitness, uh, morning physical fitness training that we did, uh, these were alien uh, concepts to them. Many of them were had a very rudimentary, elementary level education. Uh, many of them were functionally illiterate. Um, so normal ways of training that we would use in the United States, which is complemented by textbooks, et cetera, were not available to us. It was all word of mouth and showing by uh, training by showing. And some of these men had been in Saddam's uh, military. Right. Were these the ones that you relied on that had that military knowledge, that discipline? So very specifically, at the beginning of the uh, Iraqi army, they wanted to maintain a one-third split between Sunnis who were from Saddam's army, Shias who may or may not have had military training, and Kurds who had military uh, background from the Peshmerga. Um, 
And uh, we did not necessarily rely on the Saddam Hussein um, crowd, a, a former military. We actually, just as a practical matter, we came more to rely on the Kurds. Uh, in the in the battalion, uh, who made up the bulk of the NCOs and were the most competent militarily. I wanted to bring uh, co-author Ted Kemp back in the conversation again, also senior editor at CNBC. Ted, you're a civilian. You're listening to all of these accounts, reading the journals of this U.S. Marine, Michael Zakea. How do you translate all of that into a book that's uh, easy to read that could appeal to other civilians? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, going into it, I didn't know the answer to that question. Uh, but it, it it revealed itself uh, pretty clearly that, uh, and I think this comes through in the book, is that it's this is not just a military story. I mean, Mike has alluded to how you had, had Sunni Arabs, Shiite Arabs, Kurds. He even had, there were Yazidis in the battalion, other smaller minorities. And then, of course, the Americans themselves. So we're talking about uh, this sort of... Uh, collision of several cultures, some of which had sort of uh, pre-existing animus toward one another. And it became clear to me as we were kind of crafting this narrative that this was really a story about several different cultures trying to come together and working together for this mission or working against each other for this mission, as was the case uh, sometimes. And it all came down to an individual by individual basis. Um, and that's why, the, that's why The Ragged Edge is really the first story ever told in any medium, uh, nonfiction story about the Iraq War that actually includes Iraqi characters. It seems, it seems strange. That was another thing that I discovered is that just looking at what had already been done. It was, it, there were very few Iraqis or almost no Iraqis talked about in any of, these, uh, any of these books that you could read or movies you would see or television shows, you name it. And that's where there was the, the really interesting story was happening was these – uh, cultural misunderstandings, cultural miscues, and this sort of discovering of each other and each other's cultures and how each other thought. One thing I want to add to that is, um, and we very deliberately make sure that we use Arab names, even if we've changed some of the Arab names for the Iraqis that we work with, uh, virtually 100% of the um, uh, books about Iraq and Afghanistan Americanize uh, the Iraqis yeah. and Afghans that work with Americans. You yeah. know, there's a tendency to want to impose our American lens onto these people to make them American and make them palatable to you know an American audience. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, I think that the, the people who have read the book who have given us feedback, what they're saying is that the thing that really impacts readers is that's where they're really learning things. They're really learning just how fundamentally different the culture is the cultures are in in the Middle East from the American expectation. They they are not Westerners and they do not wish to be, and it's that is a fundamental truth to understand if you're going to understand the Iraq War or the Syria War. Before we head to break, we were talking about this collision of cultures. Uh, Mike, as you were training these uh, Iraqi recruits, give us an example, an anecdote of just in in simple training um, what it was like to see that collision of cultures before you, something as simple as uh, PT, for instance. Right. And there's been a lot on YouTube about uh, Iraqis or Afghans uh, doing jumping jacks and, you know, it gets a lot of laughs and things like that. And, you know, Americans, you know, have been acculturated to doing jumping jacks from probably kindergarten. Um, But, you know, these are men who, uh, you know, have completely different experiences of uh, going to school 
and of work and of life. So, you know, this concept of doing a jumping jack and moving multiple parts of your body in sync with everybody else is foreign to them. Um, you know, I don't think it's, um, if visually it might be funny, but really when you understand it, it's not necessarily. Um, you know, there's a lot more to it than just that. Um, another example is uh, this idea about, uh, and I wrote about this, they would leave water bottles all over the place. Um, not just in the military, but in the United States. I mean, you don't just leave stuff all, all around. But there, they, they have a very different culture, and I think that their culture is uh, predicated on their physical environment. You know, it's a desert culture, and there's basically a lack of everything. So the, the whole culture is based on, you know, we can all survive in this very difficult, harsh environment. Whereas in the United States, we have a culture of plenty. So we're like, well, get your own stuff. Take care of yourself. There's, you know, it's all around you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about a new book, The Ragged Edge, a U.S. Marine's account of leading the Iraqi Army 5th Battalion. It's written by Connecticut Marine Michael Zakea and CNBC senior editor Ted Kemp. When we come back from a short break, we'll find out more about the hard realities of the Iraq War from the perspective of Zakea. And we'll ask him and Ted Kemp what lessons the U.S. should take from the war as it deals with ISIS in both Iraq and Syria. You, too, can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're focusing on the Iraq War from the perspective of Iraq War veteran and Connecticut resident Michael Zakea. Zakea is a retired U.S. Marine Corps lieutenant colonel who has written, uh, co-written a book with CNBC senior editor Ted Kemp called The Ragged Edge, a UN, U.S. Marine's account of leading the Iraqi Army 5th Battalion. We mentioned a little earlier um, in the show that this book, and, and Ted Kemp made this point too, you really tried to humanize uh, the Iraqis that you were working with, Michael. When you've written this book and it's coming out in April, who's the target audience? Who do you think will pick up this book and, and read from it? Uh, I, I think that um, one, um, veterans and military uh, people with a military background will certainly be interested in reading this. Um, uh, I was the first, but now many Thousands, maybe not tens of thousands, but certainly thousands of Americans have had experiences uh, living and working with and advising uh, Iraqis. And we still have American advisors on the ground supporting Iraq, uh, fighting against uh, ISIS right now. Um, I think that people who are generally interested in um, cross-cultural kind of uh, interactions will enjoy this. I think people are interested in uh, foreign policy and foreign affairs. Um, will we'll be interested in this. I think that we offer a lot to a lot of different audiences. I want to take a quick call now. John is calling from Glastonbury. John, you're on the show. Well, thank you for taking my call. My question is, uh, you know, based on their experience in dealing with um, Iraqis, um, I, I read a poll recently uh, that Pew Research had put out saying that 91% of Iraqi citizens um, believe that Sharia law should be the law of the land. And I, I just wanted to get their take on how they feel um, 
Iraqi citizens assimilating to American culture, given some of the discussions that have taken place so far, and if they could weigh in on this, you know, very charged uh, topic regarding immigration policy. All right, John, thank you for your two questions. Mike, you want to take that one? I, I do, as a matter of fact. Um, so I don't want to give away too much about the book. Um, what I can tell you is that uh, the great majority of Iraqis uh, do not want to live in a autocratic theocracy. Um, yes, they are the majority are Muslims, and they want to live as Muslims, um, uh, but they don't want to live, you know, under an, an, an extreme ISIS regime. Um, I helped a number of Iraqis interpreters come to the United States. Uh, I've helped them assimilate. Um, one of my interpreters. Um, lives in Connecticut. I've helped him. He's now an American citizen. And, uh, you know, my experience is that there's been no problems with Iraqis who come to the United States assimilating into American culture. Ted Kemp, did you also want to respond? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, just would reiterate what, what Mike said about about uh, the reason that there were Iraqis, a big part of the reason that there were Iraqis who were willing to work with the Americans in the first place is that they, they very much were averse to this idea of a, of a theocratic autocracy. Even the religious ones, and Mike's closest friend in the, in the battalion, um, who's named Zane in the book, he, he, uh, he, he was deeply religious, is deeply religious, I should say, um, but, um, but, but was averse to this idea of, of, a, of a heavy-handed sort of um, government and, and wanted to see Iraq actually become more like the United States. It was a more merit-driven society, a society that uh, that uh, that you know had uh, equal protection for, for for various minorities and 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 sects and religions and uh, and I think that that was the experience that Mike had with most of the Iraqis and these were military Iraqis, but most of the Iraqis that he was dealing with. We've mentioned Zayn a couple of times now uh, in the hour. Tell us a little bit more about your relationship with him, him, Michael. I know in the book there is a scene in the beginning where you're talking about when your deployment was up and what that was like, uh, how it took a toll on Zane. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, he called me brother. I called him brother. Um, uh, a great deal of my time, uh, waking hours, working hours, you know, probably up to 20 hours a day I spent uh, with Zane. Um and doing the hard work of, uh, you know, supplying and outfitting uh, the battalion. Um, and, uh, again, I don't want to give away too much, but I can tell you that he um, saved or participated in saving my life, uh, and eventually uh, um, I was inducted into his tribe so that if any harm came to me, it would incur a blood debt or a blood feud with the, his tribe. You talk about um, the worry that he had that you would be harmed because yeah. you were in a very uh, critical role training this new Iraqi army battalion. The insurgents saw you as the enemy. Uh, yes. And, um, you know, Zarqawi had written a letter that said specifically that, uh, you know, we have to kill the Iraqi army before it stands up. If they stand up, then democracy will come and we will lose. So we were, because we were on the leading edge, we were very specifically targeted by Zorkawi and you know, his organization at that time. So we suffered a lot of you know, atrocities. We were in daily contact with al-Qaeda in Iraq, um, and uh, you know, they, they were very intent on destroying uh, not just the battalion, but the bonds between the Americans and the Iraqis. That would have been mission failure for us. 
Let's talk a little bit more about al-Qaeda in Iraq, AQI, which many people point to being the precursor to ISIS. Right. So much attention now on ISIS. We started the, the show with a clip from the, the current news of, of the Iraqi forces there now battling ISIS uh, to try to get them out of Mosul. Uh, when you see all of this happening now, Mike, um, what is your response? And were there ways to avoid uh, what we have to deal with today? Uh, I'm going to answer the first question first. So my, my response, especially when ISIS uh, took Fallujah and uh, subsequently when ISIS took uh, Mosul with less than 1,000 uh, soldiers that defeated a 20,000-man garrison in Mosul, um, basically the entire collapse or the collapse of the entire uh, Iraqi army there, um, very, very disillusioned, very extremely, um, yeah, sorely, sorely disillusioned, as were many veterans of uh, Fallujah. Um, the second battle yeah, of Fallujah. Yeah, the second battle, right. A lot of Marines died. Yes. Uh, a lot of Marines died. A lot of Marines were wounded. Uh, you know, my battalion took heavy casualties as well. Um, and, I, you know, obviously I was wounded uh, there. Um, so very, very disillusioned. But at the same time, uh, I can't say it was necessarily unexpected. Um you know, I understand that there's a need for an advisory mission and that, you know, historically there there is an advisory mission in the military, but I think it's a real geopolitical mistake to predicate the success of our geopolitical objectives on an advisory mission or on the actions or motivations of uh, a third country military. Ted Kemp, what does the rise of ISIS today mean for the timing of this book? Well, um, it's our position, and I think it's a position of a lot of political scientists, for example, that, that this is one war. Uh, the war that started in 2003 is the same war that we're in now, and there's, there's very clear links between the story that takes place in the Ragged Edge and today. Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who is in the Ragged Edge and uh, who was eventually killed with the aid of the 5th Battalion, which Mike trained, uh, he's in the book, and he is the person who founded ISIS. Uh, Mike's battalion was was uh, Mike literally trained the Iraqi soldiers who are literally were killing or attempting to kill the very individuals uh, who would later form ISIS. So um, uh, there's a there's a direct uh, continuity there, and. Um, with the United States now potentially looking at increasing the advisory role in Syria, and with, uh, as Mike pointed to, the, the successes that ISIS had in 2014, it gave us a new relevance and, uh, and, and frankly, uh, marked an uptick in the interest that we were seeing in the book from publishers. Right. One thing I should also mention, talking about the linkages, so we know now that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who is the so-called caliph of uh, ISIS, um, was in American custody in when when I was there in 2004 and was subsequently released and um, you know always on the radical side he became more radicalized and uh, joined uh, you know rose in the ranks of what was then Al Qaeda in Iraq and um, ascended to the leadership uh, based on this and Americans don't understand this about you know this caliphate which is the Sunni Shia divide so. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi claims direct descent from Muhammad and that he has the right to rule the what is called the uh, Dar al-Islam, the House of Peace, which is the land of all the believers. That is where that comes from. And 
Americans don't get that. Sorry about that, Mike. But when you look on television today and you see footage of Iraqi soldiers uh, fighting against ISIS, those are two, two enemies fighting each other, right? Mike Sakea is literally the individual who was there at the very beginning of both of those lines forming, the very first uh, secular, you know, Iraqi uh, rifle battalion was under, he trained it, and they were literally trying to kill the very same individuals who would later form ISIS. So we're talking about the very genesis of everything that you see going on in the news today. That's what the Ragged Edge is about. This uh, country of Iraq, very diverse. Uh, there's been critics of the war looking back at uh, Iraq uh, and the conflict there, and the idea that the U.S. was intent on uh, nation building but they were in a nation that they knew very little about. Right. Um, I really think that we looked at Iraq, and as I certainly did before I uh, started uh, really studying Iraq to get to know it, but uh, as monolithic. Um, you know, the truth is Iraq has a long, long history, and many uh, both ethnic and religious groups live there. Uh, we dealt with uh, Zoroastrians, Yazidis, Turkmen, Chaldeans, Assyrians, um, all have their separate identities, their separate histories. And for many uh, yeah, hundreds of years, uh, centuries, they all lived in relative harmony um, until now. And there's basically been a, you know, a, a de facto ethnocide or religious side uh, uh, partitioning of the country into three very distinct, you know, the Shia, the Sunni, and the, and the Kurds with, you know, and you saw an international effort to rescue the Yazidis that uh, ISIS was intent on, you know, completely killing. Um, based on their understanding of the Yazidi religion. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today I'm talking to the co-authors of a new book, The Ragged Edge, a U.S. Marine's account of leading the Iraqi Army 5th Battalion. Michael Zakea is a retired lieutenant colonel of the U.S. Marine Corps, a Connecticut resident. Also, Ted Kemp, senior editor at CNBC. He's joining us by phone today. Uh, the book is coming out uh, shortly. We had talked about who you want to pick up this book and learn from it. Something that was struck me, Michael, uh, the foreword was written by retired Major General Paul Eaton. This was the, the general that you worked under the first part of your deployment. He wrote in that foreword, quote, I don't know if we ever had any chance to succeed. That's a pretty sobering uh, thought because, you know, obviously when we went to the Green Zone, he called us to the Green Zone and he talked to us and he said, and that's where the title of the book came from, Gentlemen, We Are Operating at the Ragged Edge of Our Competence. And there's no assurance of success. We were, you know, that was him telling us that we're in uncharted waters. We've this has never been done before, and um, you know, there's no safety net. You know, there is no rescuing if you get in trouble. Um, and you know, that was a very sobering moment. So, um, for him now to say ten years later, I don't know if we ever had a chance to success. I mean, I'm sure he believed at the time that we were going to be successful, but there was um, hard to, it's very hard to describe. And we try to describe. Um, just how, uh, just the lack of any kind of uh, structure or support there was when we started. I wanted to ask you how this war shaped your life after the military. Uh, there's a passage in the book where you write, it's impossible for me to pin down a single incident from Iraq that marked a turning point for my psychological health. That's partly because of the sheer volume of experience, which ranged from laughable absurdities to something akin to waking night terrors. There's also the mysterious apparatus known as our neurology and the hard physical injuries mine took. You mentioned you were injured in the Second Battle of Fallujah. What happened after? Uh, right. So I was, um, I had several injuries, but I was uh, wounded by a rocket pole grenade in the Second Battle of Fallujah. RPG went off right behind my head. Um, you know, I, I came home. I subsequently had... Uh, 
at the time is undiagnosed, but eventually diagnosed uh, with traumatic brain injury and uh, certainly post-traumatic stress um, and many years of uh, physical uh, rehabilitation and working uh, through that. You know, obviously now I've become a very committed and very vocal and visible uh, veterans advocate um, and, you know, with connections all across the country to other veterans and other veteran organizations uh, to help uh, people who have... Um, you know, suffered uh, millions of Americans, uh, millions of American families have been shattered by this war. And, uh, you know, I think that this is the work of uh, a generation or more to um, make it right. Uh, one of the things I, I can mention is I've uh, recently joined the board of directors of the Brain Injury Association of Connecticut to work with uh, veterans in Connecticut who are suffering from uh, traumatic brain injury. We just have a few minutes left. Ted, I wanted to get back to you because, again, you're a, you're a veteran journalist and you've taken it, you took it upon yourself to help Michael Zakeo write this book after all these detailed accounts. Um, tell us more about that process. And, again, it, a lot of cross-checking, uh, looking at yeah. accounts. I mean, it's, it's a, a, a lot of, of background that you have to do. Yeah, there there was. I mean, uh, part of what Mike and I said, even from the outset, that we wanted to do was sort of take his memoir and uh, kind of overlay a journalistic kind of rigor to it, and um, that involved a lot of research, a lot of um, a lot of ne- a lot of nexus uh, searches, and uh, and a whole lot of interviews with dozens of people, and each person would int- introduce me to new people, and they would introduce me to new people beyond that who were there with Mike, both Americans and Iraqis, and. Um, uh, and there was a lot of double checking. You know, the, the, we were at a we were at a position when we were writing this, the years that we were writing it, where it, it was moving further and further back into people's history, and and their memories were beginning to fade a little bit. So sometimes you run into things where there was disagreement, where one person remembered it one way and another person remembered it another way, and it just sort of had to, it just became a process, a highly collaborative kind of process between Mike and me. Where we're, we we came to the consensus on okay, well here's 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 the, our best guess of what happened at this moment, or the motivations of this individual, and uh, and, and and then it slowly just sort of uh, you know it was like a it was like a Polaroid picture slowly coming together on the on the image, and that's that's what we came out with. And one thing I want to add to that is that um, we had a lot of source material, so not just my memoir, but a lot of the notes that I took and the fit, the fitness reports for the other advisors and things like that. And then they all had their own, uh, many of them kept their own memoirs and their own journals and had their own notes that they took about, you know, events and orders and things like that. So yeah. it was a lot of source material that we had to put together and make it fit together. And a lot of documentation as well. It, and a lot of images, photographs went a really long way. Um, and we included a number of photographs in the book. And, and those those were sometimes – sometimes when you're, when you're talking to somebody about something that was so hugely important to them at the moment that it was happening, when they talk to you about it, they don't even exactly know where to begin. And, and, and you sort of have to work around them and, and sort of figure out, you know, what's the big picture here? And, you know, if you, if you just source broadly enough, you can, you can pull that together slowly. That's Ted Kemp, senior editor at CNBC, co-author of The Ragged Edge with Michael Zakea. It's a U.S. Marine's account of leading the Iraqi Army 5th Battalion. Before we go, Michael, I wanted to ask you, when you look at Iraq today, what do you think will happen to that country? I really think that the country will fragment into three pieces. Um, I think that, and, uh, you know, I have sort of a bias here, but I believe that what's best 
for the United States would be to reinforce a, an independent Kurdistan um, and support the formation of a new country completely. Um, the, the southern part, the Shia part, is, has been completely co-opted by uh, Iran. And, you know, the Sunnis have thrown their lot in with um, ISIS. And, you know, I don't know how viable that is, but um, I don't think that the Sunni part of Iraq would be a viable separate country. So many complexities. Uh, but if you want to learn about the Iraq War and the lessons, The Ragged Edge comes out in April. Again, a U.S. Marine's account of leading the Iraqi Army 5th Battalion, co-written by Michael Zakea and Ted Kemp. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you, Lucy. Coming up, we're going to speak to another Connecticut veteran, Tom Burke. He's working with a state legislator on a bill to help veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder or traumatic brain injury. We're going to find out more after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Coming up Thursday, the Syrian conflict. Will it ever end? On the next Where We Live, we'll sit down with former U.S. Ambassador Syria Robert Ford. We'll get his take on the country's civil war and refugee crisis and discuss the future of U.S. intervention under President Trump. That's Thursday. Now, there's a movement in recent years on the federal level to help veterans with PTSD who have bad papers, meaning the former service members receive dishonorable or other than honorable discharges. Now, this prevents them from receiving federal benefits like health care, service-connected disability payments, and assistance with education and housing costs. After the Pentagon was sued by veterans advocacy groups, it issued a memo directing the department responsible for upgrading discharges to take into account a former service member's mental health records when they look at whether to upgrade a discharge. Charge. Now, here in Connecticut, this legislative session, there's a bill to help these same veterans receive state benefits. To tell us more now, I'm joined in studio by Thomas Burke, a former U.S. Marine and a current student at Yale Divinity School, associate pastor in Westport, Connecticut. Thomas, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. It's so good to be back. And you're here with your therapy dog, Rosie. I, want, I just wanted to give her a little uh, shout out. Yes, a face <laughs> only for the radio. <laughs> and also on the phone is Representative Stephen Harding, who's the legislator that's working on this bill. Representative Harding, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Good morning, and I'm happy to be on. So, uh, Tom, I'll start with you. You're a veteran, and you were discharged after serving in Afghanistan. Tell um, us a little bit about your background. So, yes, I served uh, as an infantry Marine in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, with 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines, uh, and following my service to Afghanistan, uh, where I experienced um, post-traumatic stress disorder in both Iraq and Afghanistan, I uh, self-medicated with marijuana. And because of that, and uh, in Afghanistan, along with uh, many of my Marines that I was in charge of, uh, and because of that, I was given an other than honorable discharge. Um, part of my agreement to take the, dis uh, the discharge was I agreed for a pretrial agreement that I would uh, accept substance abuse re rehabilitation program in exchange for this other than honorable discharge. So you understand the impact of that um, after it happened, what that meant other than honorable discharge? Absolutely. Um, it really, for a, a, a both generations of Vietnam and post 9-11 veterans, this is a stigma where it sort of, uh, it takes away the identity of a veteran who fought in, uh, in Vietnam, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, watched their friends die, experienced trauma, and then they're stripped of their identity of veteran as long or as well as the benefits that they deserve. 
I mentioned that there's been movement on the federal level to help veterans with other than honorable discharges. But you're working uh, with Representative Harding to get these veterans to also access state benefits. When we say state benefits, what are you talking about? So, yeah, Representative Harding has really been leading the way, as well as I'd like to thank Steve Kennedy from IAVACT um, and everyone at the Yale Veterans Legal Clinic who has been working so hard. Um, and again, because of the uh, work we've been doing on the federal level, there's been so much movement. So veterans with these other than honorable discharges have been able to receive uh, service-connected disability, but they're still barred from state benefits, which would allow them to receive in-state tuition at community colleges and UConn and uh, Southern, WestCon, as well as transitory programs at the Rocky Hill facility, which uh, for occupational therapy, substance abuse rehabilitation programs. And these are the programs that really are going to help these vulnerable v veterans who are at risk at suicide. Representative Harding, why did you sign on to this bill? Well, the reason I signed on is exactly uh, because of Mr. Burke. You know, T Tom has an amazing, incredible story of what he has done in his life, his service to our country, and then coming back into civilian life and uh, coming accustomed to it and being a success in civilian life. And uh, I look at this bill as, as really opening the door to a lot of these veterans who are in this population, uh, who went out of their way to serve their country, who were on the battlefield, suffered injuries such as TBI and PTSD due to their, due to their battlefield combat, and then unfortunately received less than honorable discharges. It seems illogical to me uh, that we don't open up these veteran benefits to these men and women who have suffered so much for our country. Um, so it, it only made sense to me that we, we, we did what was right and offered state benefits to these individuals who, 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 made, who made a great sacrifice for our country. Has there been pushback for this bill? There has there has been some questions, uh, particularly from the Department of Veterans Administrations, on on how they're going to administer this. Um, and I do understand those concerns. And Mr. Burke and myself and, and many others who are uh, proponents of this bill are working with them to try to sort something out, which which makes sense. But that really is only the pushback. Everyone appreciates the cause because it's such a noble cause. It's more or less just the schematics of putting this procedurally in place. When you mention the Department of Veterans Administration, are you talking about the State Department of Veterans Affairs? Correct, the State Department of Veterans Administration. So, so when someone would apply for veteran benefits, if they have a less than honorable discharge or administrative discharge, uh, the Department of Veterans Administration under this law would probably be the individuals examining this application, and they would be the ones determining whether or not they, uh, this veteran has PTSD or TBI, and whether or not those, uh, those injuries were suffered in combat, um, and then how those injuries related to their, their, their discharge. So those are all things that they would have to examine, and right now they're not too sure of the procedure of how that would go about. When we look on the federal side, uh, thousands of veterans who received other than honorable discharges uh, were impacted. So in, in Connecticut, how many are we talking about, Tom? So uh, the numbers that we've gotten from the Yale Veterans Legal Clinic, which has, uh, has had a lot of open litigation against the Pentagon to get this sort of work done, um, they've found that it, upwards of 13 percent of veterans since uh, post-9-11 or since post 9-11 have experienced these less than honorable discharges. And as again, I mentioned, it's not just the post 9-11 veteran. Uh, this has been an administrative way to separate veterans from the Vietnam War who also were self-medicating for um, PTSD before it even was part of the DSM and was something that the VA covered. Um, so this is, this is uh, multi-generational as well.
You mentioned, Tom, that you struggled with substance abuse. Um, you got this other than honorable discharge. You know, how did that impact you? Because you also dealt with suicide. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I was fortunate to come back here to Connecticut, um, which is one of the leading states uh, for veteran benefits. And because the VA gave me my, it, while I had an other than honorable discharge, it took a while, but I was able to receive service-connected disability, which allowed me to uh, go to school, Sacred Heart University, and now I'm at Yale Divinity School, uh, which gave me federal benefits. So I'm not, this, this piece of legislation is not for, uh, it's not at all for me. It's for a lot of vulnerable veterans that just don't have the, the same opportunities that I do. Um, and, and I've been extremely fortunate. So this is Connecticut's opportunity to really uh, match the federal progress that we've made and able to protect these vulnerable veterans. You, uh, you mentioned that this bill isn't for you. I mean, you're an advocate in the state. But are there veterans out there who have received this type of discharge, whether other than honorable or dishonorable? Is there a stigma attached to that where they don't even know that they could ask for an upgrade based on their mental health records? Absolutely. And that's one of the uh, big part of the problems. And one of the things that Yale Veterans Legal Clinic has been doing for years for Vietnam veterans and for post 9-11 veterans is uh, the the sorts of... um, avenues of regress that veterans have to uh, to approach this uh, this issue it involves thousands of hours of, of pro bono or of counsel and these are 19 year old veterans 20 year old veterans that just don't have the financial um, competency to be able to afford counsel and even when these veterans do get counsel and go to Crystal City in Virginia to go to the boards uh, they're still having a, a very low denial rate which is one of the things that Yale Veterans Legal Clinic has been extraordinary on. Um, so, yeah, so. I'll go back to Representative Harding again. He represents uh, Brookfield, Bethel, and Danbury. He signed on to this bill uh, that would help uh, veterans with uh, PTSD or traumatic brain injury who've received other than honorable discharges to help them get access to state benefits. Is this something that other states have signed on to? This is relatively unique. Um, and so Tom mentioned uh, just, just earlier that Connecticut really is the lead, one of the leading states in veteran benefits and providing for our veterans. And I think this is a great first step for the state of Connecticut. Um, and I think that this is something, uh, like many other things that we have in the state, where we can be the leading charge, we can set the example for the rest of the state. Uh, so it's unique, but it is not unique for Connecticut to be on the forefront of providing veteran benefits to, to, our, to our men and women in uniform. Lots of bills before the General Assembly, Representative uh, Harding. This has had a public hearing. What are the next steps? So the next steps now will be for this bill to be raised in a committee meeting in front of the Veterans Committee to be voted on. Uh, at that point, hopefully it successfully passes. And at that point, it will go on to the uh, House of Representatives, the full chamber. Uh, and just like every legislative process, it will be voted on in there. Uh, the Senate will then, then will pass to the Senate uh, for their vote. And then uh, hopefully the governor will sign it into law. Um, so we're looking at a few months down the road. Uh, I think the deadline for the Veterans Committee is, is a little while away. It's about a few weeks away. So it will be a little while before they vote on it, um, and then it will be quite a while. I think the end of session is uh, beginning of June this, this, this year. Um, so it could be possibly uh, by the beginning of June when hopefully this becomes law. And have you reached out to the commissioner of the State Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, Sean Connolly, any discussions of, of how this bill could help veterans in, in the I, state? I have not spoken to Mr. Connolly directly, but I've spoken with uh, 
many individuals uh, in the Department of Veterans Administration and, and legal uh, services there. And again, they, they're supportive of the cause. They appreciate the cause. They want to help. Uh, they just have some questions about procedure. And I think that will be more or less flexed out as we go further on in the legislative process. Um, it might, there might be some substitute language, maybe some amendments, which, which more structurally uh, sets um, a procedure for how these veterans can receive these benefits and how they apply. Uh, but I think that will be a little further down the road, and I look forward to working with the Department of Veterans Administration and Mr. Burke, uh, as, as such a strong advocate that he is, uh, to make sure that the procedure works and, most importantly, these men and women get the benefits they deserve. That's Representative Stephen Harding, again, who represents Brookfield, Bethel, and Danbury. Thank you for joining the show today, Representative Harding. Thank you so much for having me. It's really appreciated. Also, Thomas Burke, former U.S. Marine student at Yale Divinity School and associate pastor in Westport, Connecticut. Thanks for coming in to tell us a little bit about your story and why this bill is important to not only you, but other veterans here in Connecticut. Such a pleasure, Lucy. Thank you so much. Our show is produced by Jeff Tyson and Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. You can learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.